Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. This is Jeff Leduff, retired chief of police for the city of Baton Rouge. I'm Kelly Leduff, co-owner of Open Eyes Safety Training and Consultant. Open Eyes is focused on providing quality safety solutions that give businesses and employees the skill set needed to recognize and react to dangerous situations. On a daily basis, we hear yet another story of workplace violence or active shooter. Open Eyes offers a unique approach to keeping you and your businesses safe through site analysis, technology recommendations, policy review, and employee training. To set up a consultation for your business, call us today at 225-313-9713 or visit us at our website at openeyesafetytraining.com. We say keep open eyes because 10% of our population cause 90% of our problems. See them before they see you. This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to The Waiting Room on podcast225.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Waiting Room. This is our um, ninth episode. This is Katie Fetzer here, one of your hosts for The Waiting Room. And today, um, I have also my partner in crime, Dr. Mary Catherine Rodriguez, also co-host of The Waiting Room. Um, and for those of you that are just now tuning in, Dr. Rodriguez and I started The Waiting Room to provide an educational platform for the public and for our listeners. We feel that it's an opportunity to gain insight on mental health, um, how we apply psychology to everything from pop culture and current events to relationships and social issues. Uh, most of our episodes are um, will include a, a guest or an expert panelist, but definitely each of our episodes are hosted by myself and Dr. Rodriguez, and members of our community will often be on the show as well, kind of discussing and exploring the meaning behind all the madness. <laughs> um, so today, um, we're going to do something a little bit different. And I want to be able to introduce Dr. Rodriguez to y'all and learn a little, so that you guys can learn a little bit more about her and her experiences. Um, and so, hello, Dr. Rodriguez. <laughs> Hi. It's so nice to be on the show. <laughs> I'm so excited to be a guest today, actually, because I know that, like Kitty um, had mentioned, this is our ninth episode, and we've spent a lot of time talking about mental health in our community and different ways that it can impact us in our relationships, but we felt like taking the time to go a little bit more in-depth about how we came to become counselors, um, mm -hmm. what we specialize in, and really kind of our mission and passion moving forward in the mental health community. So I'm super excited to talk about... Um, Again, my journey to get to this point, but then also uh, what I specialize in, which is psychosocial oncology, which for those of you who aren't familiar with that term or maybe never heard it, it's the mental health of cancer. And so um, I have a few years experience um, in the hospital setting. So I'll talk a little bit about that and then um, what kind of parlayed into the wellness studio and to be sitting here on this bright uh, Thursday morning with Katie. <laughs> Should be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's start with the beginning. What led you into counseling? So I, um, I, I, 
you know, I felt like I was always an empathic child. I, I always um, really gravitated towards people that were um, hurting or just needed support. And so I always, I, I felt like that was always a good role for me with, with friendships or family members. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I went to college, my parents told me that I could not major in anything that ended in ology because that just cost them more money. And so uh, I went into international business. <laughs> so, um I spent about my freshman year and about a couple of weeks into my sophomore year in, in business. Um, and at that time, uh, for those of you who don't know, I was I was married and my husband Drew passed away from cancer at the time. We were just dating and he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And there was something about his diagnosis and this psychology elective mm-hmm. class that I was taking that it all just kind of clicked that mm-hmm. that was the field that I should be in. And so when I came home at Thanksgiving and told my parents I was switching to psychology, they um, pretty much said, well, you better start saving because you're going to pay for grad school. So um, that's that's really what led me to psychology. And then my mother, who is an educator, uh, when I was a senior in college, came home, I think, I guess for Christmas, and she said, okay, now you need to figure out what you want to do after this. And so mm-hmm. she had me meet with a social worker, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, counselor, and, and really counseling was just kind of that perfect fit for me. Yeah. And so parlay so, that into grad school. Yeah. That is very cool. And so for you, it was really, um, I had a lot to do with be, you know, knowing that you wanted to help people and right. being, having that quality of, of empathy that you recognize within yourself, but then right. also going through some sort of trial or, or adversity, which is often right. what people seek counseling for. Exactly. Exactly. And I think something really important to mention, um, for those of you who maybe, um, it's something that I just said maybe resonated with you and, and your personality and the way that you are with friends and family. Um, a counseling program is a very, um, it, it's obviously an incredible profession. Um, and like Katie said, like it's something that probably led me to counseling. Mm-hmm. And so once I decided I wanted to become a counselor, it's very important to know how to separate those two. Absolutely. Um, that you want to make sure that you're doing that work on yourself, but that you're not going into the counseling profession um, because you feel like, because you need of help yourself. Exactly. Right. right. Exactly. And so the counseling profession really is so transformative um, in how you can really hone an empathetic mm-hmm. skill set. Wow. So that's how you got here. Yes. Now, how would you um, introduce yourself in terms of your professional experiences as a counselor now? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, I'm a PhD in counseling, a licensed professional counselor. I've been practicing for a little over 10 years, which makes me officially old. Um, and I'm a nationally certified counselor. And then I about... Um, Oh gosh, I'm trying to think when that was about 2011 is when I got my oncology certification and um, then kind of parlayed that as well into a specialization in grief work. So mm-hmm. uh, definitely a, a, a licensed professional counselor that works in general therapy, but has a focus in psychosocial oncology. That psychosocial oncology, that's something that I think um, not many people know much about. I would say even in our field, um, yeah. How did you choose that concentration? Yeah, it's actually, it's a relatively young field. I mean, I think the the woman that's considered the grandmother of, of, um, of psychosocial oncology may have just retired or still practicing at Sloan Kettering. So it's about a 50 year old profession uh, or specialization. And it, per my, per Drew's diagnosis, um, and then having another family member diagnosed shortly thereafter with the same type of cancer, um, just whenever I, I see a need, um, and I've been like that since a child, I figure out, I try to figure out what I can do um, and how I can become involved. And so I actually, uh, when I was in getting my master's, I wanted to just volunteer um, at a cancer center and just 
just to serve yeah. lemonade. I mean, I didn't care what I, I did. And so I went for that interview and they said, well, what about, would you want to work here? And you can do your, um, it was right after the master's program. And I was going into the PhD program and the, um, the, at the time, the clinical director of the cancer center was a clinical psychologist that could provide the supervision for my internship. So it was kind of a win-win. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, not necessarily fell into my lap, but it was definitely something that I was passionate about that I just happened to be fortunate enough to make into a, a job. Yeah, absolutely. So through your research um, into young adults and psychosocial oncology, what would you say, because um, this is something that we know that you that you did, especially whenever you were pursuing your dissertation, it was on psychosocial oncology. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? And then also your research into young adults and psychosocial oncology, what was the most surprising factors you discovered? Yeah. So... Um so have, Drew being diagnosed at a young, as a young adult um, and wanting to, again, figure out what the need is and where the resource, resources was, I learned everything out there from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society or American Cancer Society, which are all great organizations, but they focused on what I like to call dentures or diapers. I mean, that, that 18 to 40 year age range really mm-hmm. had totally different needs than older adults or, or children. I mean, but it, when it comes to finances, dating, career path, um, fertility, there was just so many things that weren't, there wasn't enough support out there. Um, and so that, that led to my dissertation research, but then also becoming a hospital administrator. So after, um, my work, uh, in my PhD program, after I graduated, I became a director of a psychosocial oncology program. And that's when I saw an even bigger need of, of really like supporting, I guess is probably the right word, a patient through the cancer care continuum. Mm-hmm. So that early detection, that's those screenings that they have out in the community from that point of um, an abnormal finding throughout treatment or, you know, diagnosis and surgery and treatment and then survivorship care or end of life care. I really saw um, an opportunity to implement mental health in through that whole patient navigation mm-hmm. thing. So, um, so it really changed my outlook on um, how a mental health counselor can be beneficial in, in a multifaceted way, not just with providing individual right. counseling, but how we can create an entire program that will help these individuals that were diagnosed with cancer and their caregivers yeah. go through that life life experience. Absolutely. And that's something that I can actually speak to um, just with working alongside you for as long as I have, being able to see the need among that population Mm -hmm. for mental health support or Mm -hmm. therapy. And I don't think many people realize that it's not something that they are just automatically getting in a hospital setting. It's, there's probably an assumption that, um, those that are struggling or battling cancer that are hospitalized are going to automatically get some therapeutic service, meaning mental health therapeutic service. But what you and I have found in working together is that that's not applied or offered in right. all hospital settings. Right. right. Um, can you speak a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah. So uh, in 2012, the Commission on Cancer came out with a set of standards that included, and they, they do this more before 2012, but they included psychosocial care and survivorship care. And so what that means is, is the Commission on Cancer is what provides accreditation to hospitals and cancer centers. And so that once they came out with those standards, which were again reinforced in 2016, they come out every four years, they, um, 
this is saying to hospitals, not only do we think this is a good idea, you have to have these programs in order to be an accredited cancer center. And so then it becomes, okay, well, how do we find funding for that? And what are those programs are supposed to look like? And employing a mental health professional to be to come in and look at that from the wellness model. And we've talked about the the difference between the mm-hmm. medical model and the wellness model to look at what that care should look like from a wellness perspective, screening for psychosocial distress, providing whether that's individual counseling or uh, group counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the biggest thing is survivorship care, because when a person has completed their active treatment, we kind of say, okay, pat it on the back, go back to your, your old life, right? So much has changed. And not only that, oftentimes people, um, if they have what we call an abnormal finding, either that was found at a community screening or that might've been found by their, um, their primary care physician, who's not an oncologist. So the second that abnormal finding is discovered, they're then punted to a specialist who's then maybe punted to a surgeon, to an oncologist. So by the time that person's actually finished active treatment and they say, okay, now you're gonna be followed by your primary care physician, they might not have seen that person in a year. And they have no idea what treatment they've had. And as a patient who's a lay person that doesn't know the medical terms, can't remember all the names of the drugs that they had or the mm-hmm. the therapies that they've had. So. Um, there's something called a treatment summary um, that are, is to be provided by the, the the cancer center to go back to the primary care physician. So then the patient can say, here, this is what I've had. Um, and they're a part of that their, their care. They're, they're more of a proactive patient. So it's, a, it's an incredible thing to do, but it's a huge undertaking for hospitals to have to figure out what's the best process and how to do that. A mental health professional, I think, is probably has one of the best perspectives on that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a huge need that we see across the board for mental health, really honestly, mental health professionals to be employed, not even just in oncology and hospital settings, but in pediatric Mm -hmm. care. And, you know, exactly, exactly. Cancer is just one, right, one type of where they're, Mm -hmm. they're, they're a, a therapist could specialize in something. Wow. So, for those of you that don't know, this might have not gotten mentioned in Dr. Rodriguez's introduction, but she is from New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, of course, you know, something that I think is is really paramount that kind of was part of your journey as you were becoming a mental health counselor was Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Um, what would you say it was like to be a mental health counselor in a cancer center, you know, right after Hurricane Katrina hit? Yeah. So, um, it was twofold actually, because I was also affected by Hurricane Katrina. I lost everything as well. So it was not only, um, coming to work and, and treating and helping individuals who've lost everything and have a cancer diagnosis, but also going through that myself and how to separate those two. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was, it was a very unique situation because the cancer center that I was working with, um, had to, the charity system closed. So all the patients that would have gone through the charity system were now at our doorstep. And so you had this really interesting juxtaposition in the waiting room of people that, you know, would have been going through the charity system and those that were going through a private hospital. Mm So, um, it, and definitely that's when I think the mental health piece was so important because you had people grieving in droves and such compounded grief, um, and then sometimes those cancer diagnoses developed through during the time of Hurricane Katrina. So it was people didn't know what to do, where to turn, where those resources were. So it was um, it was definitely um, it was a I, I, God, I'm trying to think of the right word to describe it, because obviously it was devastating and traumatic. Mm-hmm. But there was this 
this camaraderie, this resiliency, because in 2006 is when the Saints came back into the dome. Oh yeah. And I mean, I have to just mention this because it's, and if you haven't seen the the documentary Gleason, you really need to see it because Steve Gleason and that one block punt, I mean, cause I was working downtown around the world. Yeah. I was working downtown at the time, and actually, when we won the Super Bowl, I think I didn't go to work for almost two weeks. Everything kept getting shut down because of parades and celebrations. And so, um, the way that uplifted the spirits of those, those patients and those caregivers—I mean, and even just the the support of of people coming to visit patients—it was it was a really incredible time that I think was so honored to be part of a city that came together for one another like mm-hmm. that. It was, it was pretty incredible. Yeah. And I bet it's informed your, your practice in a lot of ways too, in terms of being a counselor, you know, and yeah. has, has given you a lot of informed perspective Yeah, just based on what you, you know, who you worked with at the time right? when they, what they were going through. But then, like you said, also being able to, or, or having to separate what you also experienced as right. well. Right. And that's what really lent my fascination with grief work because I, that through those experiences, I realized, wow, we don't really just grieve when someone passes away. We grieve right. so many things in life and grief is not always negative. You know, grief changes us and it's about acceptance and moving forward. So, um, all of that I think was very influential into shaping mm-hmm. who I am and, and really the, the sentiment of the wellness studio and how it looks and feels. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was after this that you became a hospital administrator. How exactly did that happen for you in your career journey? Yeah. So again, um, one of those things that I think when you, it's 90% hard work and then 10% luck. Um, I, uh, so I was finished, I'd finished my PhD and I had been at that previous cancer center for, for three years. And so I was ready for like the next big Mm -hmm. kind of move. And, um, I actually wanted to do a postdoctorate fellowship. So I had applied for MD Anderson and Sloan Kettering. I was ready. This was right after my husband died. So I was ready for a whole new chapter. And, um, like I had mentioned, my my sister in law. So my brother has one. I mean, I have one biological sibling, and his wife was diagnosed with the exact same subtype um, of Hodgkin's as Drew. And so she was at a follow up appointment with her oncologist um, in Covington. So it wasn't even that that far. And they were. My brother was talking to her oncologist and saying, "Oh, my sister does something in psychology and oncology, and my, my brother's <laughs> in construction. So we have very different lives." And. Uh, and the doctor said, "Well, that sounds interesting. Tell her to tell her to call me." And I'll never forget this. The doctor's voicemail was a pirate, <laughs> so I thought it was a prank. <laughs> he literally, the voicemail was like, Arr. "Quite interesting." Yeah, I'm not kidding. He's probably the top one of the top oncologists in our state. But anyway, so he uh, he said, "Look, I have no jobs for you, but I like you on paper. So could you just come in for an interview?" I said, uh, "Okay." So I'm thinking to myself, "I'm at the door. I'm going to Houston or New York," and. Um, the the cancer center where I become a, I became an administrator the vice president just happened to be sitting in on that meeting that day and by the time I got back to New Orleans and she came back to Baton Rouge mm-hmm. she called me and offered me a job so uh, happened very organically very organic very organically and very quickly um, and so that's when I that 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 forming of policy and procedure for a cancer mm-hmm. patient and navigation and all of that stuff really just when I when you become almost just mesmerized by something where you like, okay, this is where I feel like I can make a difference. I mean, I just kind of dove, dove in for it. Mm -hmm. And and this part really sticks out for me in your journey, because I know that this is the point at which you and I met. Yeah. Um, Because I know which hospital that you're speaking of. And and I also happen to be working 
at the same exact hospital. So my next question for you, because I know that this is kind of what came next yeah. for you, is when did you then decide to go into private practice? You know, it was it was a it was a big decision, but it was also one that was was bittersweet. I did love um, the opportunity to create programs for patients and see mm-hmm. them come come to fruition. Um, but in a hospital setting, you have that goes through so many layers of administrators and fa- and all these. It's not something that happens, I think, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And when you're hungry and you're passionate, it's it's almost you feel like okay, I keep coming up against this brick wall, and I know that I'm I'm meant to be doing something else. It was almost like this this kind of voice speaking Calling. to you. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so um, I thought to myself, it was, I was a time in my life where. I had the time, the resources to to throw myself into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, somebody once told me that you have about five changes in your career path uh, throughout your lifetime. And so once you feel like you've done all you can in one aspect, but you're still hungry to do more, it's about taking a step back. And uh, this is, again, not just to plug counseling, but this is a great time for counseling to really say, okay, like with, with my skill sets, where am I, where, what's my best fit for now, for mm-hmm. at this time? So, um so it, for you, it felt like it was time for that it was time. next step. It was time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, then it's, it was definitely a leap of faith. I can tell you that. But, uh, <laughs> but it worked. It paid off for sure. And yeah, like I said, I think I met you. So that was in September. No, no. I'm trying to think. November of 2012. Yep. And, and then, then I met you probably, yeah, July, yeah. June or July. So we, we actually have to, we have to give it, we have to put an ending on this. Yeah. Not an ending. What would I call it? A comma. <laughs> Um, but what followed up after that is Dr. Roderick and I met, we were both working in the same hospital, but we met and then both, and you know, after she had taken that step to actually hang the shingle, um, with what is now the wellness studio, um, we met and then have co-founded this together and it's, um, been a really, really cool journey and I've, I've loved being a part of a journey with you, but I also love hearing again and again about the journey that, that you, um, have been on in your career leading up to this point. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you would want to share or add, um, just about you and your professional experiences that you Hmm. would want listeners to know? You know, I think it's, I feel like a lot of people always say like, wow, you've done a lot in a short amount of time. Um, and which I think 10 years is a long time, but I, I think what I want people to know is my life has really unfolded and I've allowed it to do so. Um, There's definitely times I did that kicking and screaming where I felt like something wasn't happening fast enough or I couldn't understand why certain things were happening Mm -hmm. that way, why people were entering my life or exiting my life. And so what I would want other people to, to kind of know or the takeaway would be to really listen to your intuition um, consult with uh, or, or seek out counseling if you're struggling with mm-hmm. decisions about career or family or relationships because when you do that and you do that wholeheartedly amazing things can develop I mean I I, I have to say every Friday when I leave the wellness studio for the weekend there's such a tremendous humbleization and pride that comes over me because I cannot believe I get to come here and do this every day. Mm-hmm. But that is all, and you can speak to this, that is met with stress, that is met with Absolutely. you know, lack of sleep and and all, all different types of emotions. But um, I also know that this is all gonna go in many different directions over time and that I'm just kind of holding on along for the ride. So if, mm-hmm. if you're struggling out there with kind of your career path, definitely 
seek counseling. I mean, yeah. somebody can can really help you get a better perspective. That's a I would say that's a great way to wrap up and conclude because uh, that is exactly what this is all about. <laughs> that is what this podcast is all about is that we want to inform listeners about counseling and mental health. And we hope that this is something that can be both informative and insightful for those that are listening. Um, thank you, Dr. Rodrigue, yeah. for Thanks sitting for in on me, this Katie. Q&A. Um, <laughs> And we will see everyone next time. Thanks for listening to The Waiting Room. This has been a podcast 225.com production.